What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I have a very special edition of the Macro Insights Podcast, where I'm joined by Dr. Anas Alhaji. If you follow me on Twitter, you've, you know that he comes on my spaces semi-frequently and talks about oil and gas updates. And every now and then when there's an absolute banger of one, I want to upload it onto the audio feed for the Macro Insights listeners who maybe are not on Twitter or um, you know, want to replay that audio uh, in some way, shape, or form. So buckle up as we have a great episode with Dr. Anas Alhaji. And I'll, as always, remember, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear in this podcast should not be taken as financial advice. It is strictly the opinion of Dr. Anas and myself. And shout out to my sponsors. I got Pleb Lab. So Pleb Lab has a bunch of great events coming up in Austin, Texas. If you are around, around June 23rd, they're going to be a Satlantis Gamer Night, which will have barbecue, and you could check all that information out at pleblab.com. Also, they're hosting the Fresh Bites Farmers Market on July 1st, and there's still space. So if you're in the Austin area and would like to join and bring some food or produce or whatever to this farmer's market, reach out to them on their meetup page and um, in uh, at their website and at their contact me section on pleblab.com. Tweet at them, do all that kind of stuff. And if you're not in Austin and you're like, man, this sounds really cool. I want to get into the weeds of everything going on at Pleb Lab. Check out the Nomad Pass for $100 a month. You can get access to their Slack, which has great people like Odell, myself, plenty of others. Some of the best minds in the Bitcoin space are in this Slack channel. You can have direct access to them. So not only is it a giant group message with all their thoughts and threads and everything else, but you could also get a hold of them talk with them a little bit and uh, get some questions answered, maybe collab with them. There's a lot of great opportunities. You get access to their private events, recordings, and whenever you're in Austin, Texas, you get access to the facility. So it's overall a great deal. I highly recommend it. And lastly, shout out to Idaho Armored Vaults. That is goldsilvervault.com where you can check out the Bob and Bob and team who have been working hard to give you the best margins of any of the precious metals uh, that you could buy and sell. They have massive amounts of liquidity. Whatever you want to do, if you were looking to get into the precious metals market, I recommend Idaho Armored Vaults. That's goldsilvervault.com, where they have the best uh, liquidity and access to everything in the game. So be sure to check out Bob and team. All right. That's enough for me. Now, let's get into the episode with Dr. Anas Alhaji. All right. All right. We are having a lot of people start to, to come in. So, Dr. Anas, how are you doing this afternoon? I am uh, very excited. A lot of news. All right. That's awesome. All right. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for recent reaching out. And, uh, yeah, glad we can, uh, th- thanks we can to you. Uh, get this going here. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, uh, glad we can kind of squeeze this in here. So we we are on a little bit of a limited time schedule. Uh, unfortunately, I do have uh, you know so, some meetings that I have to get to uh, in the next hour or so. So um, yeah, Doctor Anas, I'll uh, I'll just let you start it off here um, because you know you, you reach out to me that there's some big news with you know Iran uh, and kind of what's going on in that that area. So uh, yeah. 
what what is going on and uh go ahead and give us the spiel uh well uh, the news uh, was uh broken uh by a kind of a suspicious news outlet uh that was clear from the beginning the news did not add up so when we wrote our report today we did say we believe it when we see it when we contacted some of our clients we told them to ignore the news and happily they made some money. So we are very happy for them. Um, the, uh, later on, the White House denied the news. And the question, of course, is uh, why they kind of leaked such a news and what the advantage and who benefits from that. Uh, let's start from the beginning. Basically, we are talking about a deal with Iran that the Obama administration signed in 2014, and then uh, President Trump uh, revoked it in 2018 in what I call a fiasco that kind of ruined it for everyone in the oil market at that time, not because of the sanctions, but because literally President Trump played everyone in Q4 2018 he told the Saudis, look, I'm going to reimpose sanctions on Iran. I need the compensation. You need to increase production. They were going on a very tight policy to, um, in order to raise oil prices and balance the market. Uh, they, were, they succeeded. Oil prices were about $85. They increased production. The moment President Trump knew that the tankers are uh, out of the Gulf, he announced... Um, an exemption to all Iran customers, which means that the sanctions basically is not enforced and prices collapsed. Uh, it was very painful for a lot of people. Anyway, uh, that those sanctions basically are still in force. But as you all know, that Iran perfected the game of selling its oil. Uh, so they were making money. They were exporting oil all the time. Uh, all the numbers that have been cited in the media about Iran exports, these are the lowest numbers. Uh, the numbers are way higher than what is reported by the media. That's how the regime survived. Uh, the issue for us today is this. We knew that the news was fake uh, from the first moment, especially given the source of it. Uh, but let's assume, and this is really the main point of this space here, because I've seen a lot of uh, nonsense going on on social media and some of the media in the last hour or so. Let's assume that it, it was serious. Let's assume that the sanctions will be lifted tomorrow. What is the impact on the oil market? Now, the market is going to react no matter what. And we've seen it today. It reacted immediately. We lost about 4.5% on the spot, just like that, because of the news. And it shows how much traders and others basically do not know the facts on the ground. The fact on the ground is that Iran is producing at maximum. Iran is exporting at maximum. In fact, Iran, since last year, they got a green light from the Biden administration. Remember that the Biden administration gave a green light to Venezuela to allow two European companies to ship Venezuelan oil to Europe 
despite the sanctions. A week later, they send a message to Iran through a third party telling them that the Biden administration will ignore or turn the blind eye to Iran's shipment to Europe. And that's exactly what happened. The Iranians basically started, diverted shipments to Europe. And those shipments basically do not need to be hidden anymore. So you can see them anywhere because of the green light from the Biden administration. At the same time, the Biden administration kind of have ended up with catch-22. This is a big problem, which is, um, if you recall, I'm going to go back to Yemen here. If you recall that the moment the Biden administration uh, um, basically took over the White House, they lifted the Houthis from the terrorism list. And a lot of people get angry, especially Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries. How dare you lift the Houthis from the terrorism list? There is something very technical, very important about U.S. law people must understand, and it is related to Iran and the current, current circumstances. If you are going to mediate between the Houthis and Saudi Arabia, between the Houthis and the UAE, the law says if a country or a group is on a terrorism list, no U.S. person can meet with those people. So how can you negotiate or mediate if the other party you cannot talk to and you cannot meet? So lifting the Houthis from the terrorism list was not intended to, to kind of praise the Houthis or support them, but that's the only way U.S. officials can meet with their leadership. The same logic with Iran today. The only way the U.S. basically can keep the Iranians at the table to negotiate is literally to ignore the sanctions. And guess what? The Iranians exploited that to the maximum, literally to the maximum. So they increased their oil production, they increased their exports, knowing that the Biden administration uh, is not going to do anything about it because the moment they do anything, then the negotiations will stall. So the Iranians took, care, took, took really the benefits of that and they were able to increase their production and uh, exports. And of course, they were able to get the exemption from Iraq, uh, sorry, the exemption from the U.S. regarding Iraq so they sell Iraq gasoline, uh, natural gas, and electricity. Now, supposedly, and this is related to the news today, supposedly they get an exemption from the U.S. to supply Iraq with these materials, and Iraq will have an escrow account where they deposit the, the revenues for Iran. So Iran was not allowed to get the money, but the money will stay in Iraq. Well, the Iranians were smarter than the Biden administration or even the Trump administration. What they did, they said, okay, uh, Basra now, the heat is, is the temperature is, uh, by U.S. standard, uh, Fahrenheit, is 100, 110. And I'm, they haven't paid me in three months or four months or whatever. And I'm going to cut off the electricity. I'm going to cut off the gas. And of course, the Iraqis will scramble and say, you know, please, 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 please give us the money. 
And I can tell you without any reservation that the Iranians showed up in planes in Baghdad and the Iraqis literally brought in boxes and, and bags of dollars and they were loaded on those planes back to Tehran. And the Iranians, every time uh, they needed the money, they, they do that. So they were able to get their money anyway, despite the U.S. sanctions. But they still have probably about $10 billion in Baghdad today. And why this is related to the news today? Because, yes, the Biden administration promised them that they will get the frozen money back. That's correct. That's part of the negotiations. But all this frozen money is not in the United States and it's not under the control of the United States. The frozen money basically is in Iraq, South Korea, and some other countries, some in uh, uh, India and other places. So what will happen if we end up with a deal is that the Biden administration will allow uh, those countries basically to give the money back to, uh, to Iran. Let's go back to the oil market. So Iranians are producing at maximum, exporting at maximum, and therefore, if the sanctions are lifted tomorrow, there will be no change in the market. And therefore, there is no reason fundamentally to lower prices because production will be the same, exports will be the same. Now, given what we know from the past, the Iranian leadership might end up uh, doing a game they've done before, which is reduce their exports, build up the floating storage, and then release it. And then they can show the world, oh, look, we increased our exports. Look, look, uh, they tell pe oh, their people, look at the benefits of the deal. We were able to export more. We were able to make more money. But they just built up the floating storage. Speaking of the floating storage, I mentioned earlier that Iran is producing at maximum. I mentioned earlier that they are exporting at maximum. For floating storage, within the last 12 months alone, the Iranian floating storage declined by more than 50%. The amount left is very tiny, very small. So the impact on the market, if we have, if the sanctions are lifted tomorrow, is very minimal. And by the way, the floating storage, unlike what you hear in the market, the floating storage exceeded 100 million barrels a year ago. Now, it is about 47 and uh, about 35 percent of it is condensates and the rest is crude. Most of the condensates basically are being sold. So there is no or the floating storage is small. There is no additional production. There is no additional exports. Therefore, if the sanctions are lifted, nothing is going to change from a fundamental point of view. But as you all know, traders and algos, etc., probably they will play the market for two, three days, and then everything will go back to uh, normal. The question is, if the sanctions are lifted tomorrow, how long it will take Iran to increase production and go back to four or 4.5 million or 5 million, whatever the amount they, they are planning to produce, it will take a long time. Our estimate that above current production to add um, another 500,000 they need probably at least at least nine months and to add a million they need a year and a half at least a year and a half and i don't think this a year this year and a half is even correct because 
the year and a half assumes that everything is ready. The contracts are ready. The international investment is ready. The international companies are ready. So we are talking about to, to have some really meaningful increase. We need about a year and a half to two years to see a meaningful increase. But by that time, global oil demand is going to increase by more than the amount that the Iranians are going to add. And therefore, there is no fear that the Iranian additions are going to lower prices or pressure prices down. This is not going to be the case. The final point before we uh, open the floor for questions is this. The Russians are involved in Iran and they want to help the Iranians increase their oil production and their gas production. And that's what the contracts are about. But I can assure you that the Russians are in Iran to limit Iran's production of oil and gas. Yes, they want to help them increase it a little bit, but that's it. They are there to prevent... Look, Iran has the second largest reserves of natural gas in the world. If the U.S. is serious about solving the gas problem, I'm talking about natural gas, in Europe and the rest of the world forever without Russian gas, they need to go to Iran. They need to develop the Iranian gas. And Russia understand that. And that's why they want to prevent Iran from developing its natural gas reserves. So they can help them to kind of increase it a little bit, but that's it. And the evidence all over the place. We have something called the Arab gas pipeline that was built from Egypt, goes through the Aqaba uh, Gulf or the Gulf of Aqaba to Jordan to Syria, all the way to the Turkish border, and it's supposed to take the, the Egyptian gas all the way to Europe. And in the middle of Syria, at the city of Homs, basically there was kind of a section that goes to Lebanon, and that was supposed to go to Cyprus. Guess who stopped it? The Russians. And then there was a proposal in 2008, was made to the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, by the Qataris and the Iranians to take, to build a pipeline from the North Field in the middle of the Gulf, that's a gas field, that's the Iranian share of the, of the largest gas field in the world. To take to, so the Qataris will build the gas, the gas is Iranian, the Qataris will build the pipeline and they will take it all the way to Syria to connect it with the Arab gas pipeline to take it to Europe. Bashar al-Assad killed it because the Russians told him to kill it. So the final point basically is, yes, uh, Iran has the resources. It could make a major change globally, but it is very clear because of its actions in the region and because of its philosophy and because of its human rights abuses and everything else, getting sanctions by the West. But that does not mean that Russia is going to help either because Russia is there to limit uh, Iran. So the conclusion is the news was fake. The question is, why did they do it? Well, there are several factions in Iran. It's not only one faction. And in my view, and, and this is just a personal view, it could be wrong. 
in my view, that's one of the factions released this news for domestic purposes and has nothing to do with the international objectives. We've seen this so many times in the past. Think about it this way. When the former uh, prime minister of Japan was visiting Iran, the moment his plane landed at the airport, two, uh, two tankers, two Japanese tankers, or one, one ship, one tanker, being attacked at Fujairah port. If you guys recall, when there were four ships that had been attacked at that time. It was very clear that one faction was responsible uh, for that. And speaking of this and speaking about the media and how it covers the oil market and why the Saudis were mad at some of the media, here is the story about those four tankers when uh, Fujimori basically landed in, um, in Tehran and someone attacked those four ships. The news says there were two oil tankers, two oil tankers being hit. And of course, oil prices went up that day. And everyone was talking about four ships. Two of them are oil tankers. Guess what? One of them was carrying uh, vegetable oil. It wasn't even crude oil the way we know it. It was vegetable oil coming from Brazil. It was sunflower seed oil. But the media report, go back and look at it in Google. The media reported that as oil and people be reacting as we lost 2 million barrels or whatever the amount is of oil because it's, it wasn't. It was vegetable oil. It was sunflower seed oil from Brazil. And going where? It was going to Iran. It was the Iranian people who lost that cooking oil. Why? Again. The, the, the regime itself is fragmented and they own the economy and there are several factions who control several things, including the vegetable oil trade. So they benefit from that too. Um, Brandon, I'm ready for any questions and then we can uh, uh, we still probably have about 10, 15 minutes. All right, awesome. Well, we do have a couple of people waiting, so I bring uh, them up one at a time. Uh, Hugo Kruger, I believe is how you say it. I, if I uh, botched, I apologize, but Hugo, or is yours? Hi, do you hear me? Yep, we can hear you. Okay, great. So I just want to give a bit of background myself. I'm married to an Iranian woman. I'm from South Africa. I was in the country a month ago, two months ago, and um, I also work in the oil industry and also have a background on uh, nuclear power. So I've got some sense of what's what's going on over there. Um, I agree with the sentiment on Iranian oil, where I have some disagreement maybe, um, is just uh, not to confuse Iran's reserves with Iran's ability to extract. Okay, I, I think uh, the, the speaker spoke a little bit about that, but Russia, for example, has one of the largest uh, natural gas reserves in the world. Russia, unfortunately, cannot untap it at an affordable price. In fact, some analysts um, going back a few years ago have made the argument that Russia needs high gas prices to pay off its mall infrastructure in the north because it built a lot of infrastructure in the north of, uh, of Russia that is uh, very expensive. And that's placed back in the backdrop of this war. Iran's got a similar issue. Um, its natural gas reserves um, and particularly its oil reserves are increasingly located in areas that are more difficult to extract. So the price um, 
you know, is more important than the amount of uh, gas in the ground. On the nuclear issue, I just want to say something. I had an interview with Gareth Porter, who's the prominent historian on Iran's nuclear weapons. Iran, the theory that Iran has a nuclear weapons program was manufactured by Mossad. Iran, however, has a deterrence capability and it should not be confused. Basically, they have centrifuges and whenever they spin the centrifuges, that's when they get attention. But I don't believe that Iran ever has an intention for a nuclear weapon because they know the diplomatic costs will be too high. They keep that option open. So they play that fine red line to try and get the Americans to the negotiation table. And one way that the Iranian government, I think, will signal that they're ready for discussion is you will hear the IEA say they are at 80% enrichment or whatever it is, but they have no intention of turning that uranium stockpile into a nuclear weapon because the cost is just too high for them diplomatically. So that's sort of just my few cents on it. On Iran itself, um, just quickly, I think more people should visit the country. It's enormously safe. It's open for foreigners. Of course, I am not an American, so I won't get arrested, but um, I believe there needs to be just more contact between Iran and the rest of the world, because if people don't start talking to Iranians on a local level, um, I believe the hostilities will continue. I think public opinion must change towards Iran before the politics will change. So, yeah, thank you for that. Uh, man, um, y your, your wife is a hero. Thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for that comment, I'll tell her. Great stuff there, great stuff. Um, we also have a, a little bit more time for some more questions. So if you'd like to come up and ask Dr. Arnaz a question, feel free to request the mic and you can uh, you can come on up. Um, if not, Dr. Arnaz, I don't know if you have any uh, closing remarks or anything else you'd like to uh, speak about, but we do have a little bit more time here. So, um, yeah, feel free to, to jump right in, Dr. Anas. Um, the, any news related right now to um, OPEC fragmentation uh, or any problems within OPEC itself, we got to be very careful. Any news about the nuclear deal, we have to be very careful because most of those news uh, are absolutely incorrect. We have seen so many pieces of news in the last five months or so published by prestigious publications. They were completely either false or misrepresented uh, the, uh, the facts. And in the last space, I emphasized the point about the bias in the media by saying the following, saying that the media is reporting uh, a major loss of market share of OPEC members in Asia. Today in the uh, newsletter that we are publishing today and we published yesterday, uh, we are going to post, by the way, the Iran comments, etc., in the newsletter uh, just shortly after we finish. Uh, but we are showing that if you look at Saudi Arabia and you look at Iraq, uh, where is the market loss? Where is the market share loss in Asia? But the media keeps saying it until people believe there is a surplus of oil. So in today's chart that we are posting in the Daily Energy Report, we are showing Iraq's exports from the south. And Iraq exports from the south have been flat. So where is the loss? Yeah, they lost in India. Yes, but they gained in China and they gained in Europe. 
and the media is talking about continuously talking about OPEC loss in Asia, but they never talked about the Russian loss in Europe that OPEC took over. Just show you the bias in the in the in the reporting. In general, the action of the Saudis, as we highlighted in the newsletter uh, uh, on Sunday, the action of the Saudis when they announced the one million barrel voluntary cut on Sunday, it was intended to take over the narrative in the market. Has nothing to do with declining demand has nothing to do with anything else. In fact, the demand is not declining. The demand is rising. What changed is that the growth in demand and the expectations are lower, but the demand is going up. So the Saudis did it for July. And as many of you know, we were the only one who predicted this on Friday. We said specifically, we said it's going to be in July and there will be a voluntary cut. And the, that newsletter on Friday is still there on the web. So they did it because they want to literally control the narrative. It's not as a reaction to demand. At the same time, and I will end with this, they are sending a message to Russia. Basically, raise, we are raising prices, and the rise in prices will compensate for your cut, so your revenues will not change. And we are helping you here, so help yourself. In a sense, it is kind of a hidden threat to the Russians. If you don't cut, some, we, we might experience what we did in, on March 6 and 7 in 2020 when the Saudis crashed the market. So there was an embedded threat in those statements. But the idea here is the Russians have to cut to 10 million. They have to. So what the Russians are playing, they are playing a different game. Say, so, okay, I'm going to have a surge capacity used I'm going to jack up my production to 10.7 or 10.8. And now let's talk about a cut. It does not work that way. And the Saudis are aware of that. So they're, they're, it's, it is very clear that there is a lot of pressure on the Russians. Putin called MBS yesterday of Saudi Arabia, and they talked about it. So it seems that we might see a, a reduction, in an actual reduction in uh, Russian uh, production and therefore exports. And as a result, as a result, probably this, sharp increase in imports from China and India, from Russia, uh, just to take advantage of current prices and the current situation before the cut. Back to you. Yeah, great stuff, Dr. Arnas. We have a new guest on stage, Alternative FY. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to pronounce your name, but uh, that is uh, the handle. So you got uh, the floor. Thank you very much. It's alternative for Yemen, and my name is Mohammed Akloud. It's always a pleasure to listen to Dr. Anas. It's always enlightening, and we appreciate uh, those episodes that he's uh, doing. Uh, I have a question. It might be a little bit off uh, the line of discussion, but it is about the uh, nuclear program of Saudi Arabia. There was a meeting at a ministerial level, and they uh, told the Americans that it's no secret that we've started our uh, nuclear program. Will that have any implications on the uh, political arena that can also uh, sharpen the uh, problem with the uh, oil market? Uh, uh, no, uh, we always emphasize the point in our publications and other means 
that there are four countries in the Arab world, they need nuclear power, nuclear, I'm talking about uh, uh, nuclear power generation uh, as soon as possible. And that's Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Algeria, and Morocco. Otherwise, by 2035, we are going to have some major crisis in those economies because we are not going to have enough power to support the economy. And if, if they have to do something, then there will be a major decline in exports of oil and natural gas, which means that Europe and others are going to suffer greatly. So nuclear power generation in those countries is going to help the whole world. At the same time, they can meet their climate obligations uh, easily uh, through nuclear power. So between climate obligations and between the other policies, no one has any problems with the nuclear power uh, generation, especially if they follow the uh, UAE model, uh, where uh, enrichment will happen somewhere else, and then the disposal of the fuel uh, uh, will be somewhere else. So the country itself will not enrich and will not dispose of the fuel within its borders. And that's what the UAE agreed for. So I don't think there will be any political ramifications uh, uh, except the political ramifications from having uh, a strong a strong economy with strong growth. All right, great question. Uh, I will uh, get the next speaker up here. Um, I believe it was uh, Sai. By the way, while you are getting someone else, I just want to say this, that I mentioned earlier that all the reports about Iranian oil production showed the lowest numbers. This not the actual numbers. Right now, in, in just recent months, Iranian oil exports uh, might have reached 2.2 million barrels a day, which is uh, way larger than what the media uh, is reporting. The average that the media is reporting right now is about 1.5 to 1.6 million barrels, uh, I think it's probably about 2.2. All right, great insight there. Uh, Sai, the uh, floor is yours. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Ann, Doctor, for your insights. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, I had one question regarding the Russia-Saudi uh, dynamics. So for Russia, given the price cap of $1.60, um, how does an oil price well above 80 make sense? So Maybe Saudi wants a price oil price of 90 or 100, but for Russia, the price is capped. So how, how does this dynamic between Russia and uh, Saudi work? Thank you. The uh, correction, first of all, our clarification, mm -hmm. uh, it's not capped, okay? There is some okay. artificial uh, thing going on that someone said we want to cap it at 60, and we've been mm -hmm. saying from day one, that the cab has no impact on anything, period, period. When, you t when it comes to market balances, it has no impact. It is the cab, the price cab is a joke. The price cab is literally a communist idea. And people have to okay. realize that. that that's when you, when you try to play with the prices, that's what it is. Uh, it has no impact. And I, 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 I can, for anyone who, who doubt this, I can provide all the evidence to show that it has... Uh, no impact, and I put some uh, cartoons and other things on on my uh, Twitter feed just to show all the problems uh, with it. And for one of them, basically, is is uh, Ted, Senator Ted Cruz basically talking to 
to uh, secretary the to the treasury secretary who used to be the head of the central bank or the um, uh, federal reserve bank in the in the united states and telling her look you know if 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 you can cab russian crude russian crude on the other side of the world please cab our health cost if you cannot <laughs> if you cannot cap the health cost within the united states how you are going to cap some countries commodity in the middle of the seas in the middle of the oceans so it does not work that way the reason why we have uh, a, a major reduction in the russian prices remember that the reductions happened the moment putin decided to shift shipments months before the sanctions a month before the price cap and the largest discount happened before the sanctions and before the price cap why because the cost of shipment was too high people do not realize that the distance from northern russia to china and india is multiples of that to europe and there were only a few ships so the shipping costs went through the roof so the, to compensate for that they have to lower prices that's what it is but lower prices etc 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 played a game here where we discussed this in previous spaces um if i can get the diesel from russia at 40% of my cost at 40% lower than my cost Mm-hmm. Why I have to produce it? I don't need to produce diesel. I can just get the Russian diesel. Okay. okay? So what happened is mm-hmm. some OPEC members and some OPEC plus members said, you know what? I can cut production and I don't have even to refine anything. I just can get, get the Russian products at cheap price I can produce later. This reminds me of another right. point, which is from energy security and national security point of view in the long run. One of the worst thing you can do to your country is to stimulate investment in your oil and gas resources, export them, sell them, exhaust the resource base of your country, and impose sanctions on your enemy. So down the line, 20, 30 years from now, you will not have any oil or gas and your enemy has all the oil and gas. That's right. why people always objected to sanctions because they don't make sense. And that's what they are doing to right now to Russia. That's what they are doing to Iran. I'm not saying that we should not react. I'm just saying that it is the wrong policy because what we did in the United States here is we are exporting all our resources around the world to help Europe and others and Iran and Russia are preserving their resources. So what's going to happen 20 years from now? And for those who think oh we are going to be we're not going to be using oil and gas by that time. Well, think again. Back to you, Brandon. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, great question there, Sai. I really appreciate you uh, coming up. Um, I will put you down and rotate next. Um, <clears throat> I believe it's Nishit. Um, welcome to the uh, welcome to the stage. Do you have a question for Doctor Anas? Hey Nishit, you have the uh, you have the floor here. 
uh hi uh, dr anas uh, i have been hearing your speeches and it's been very enlightening thank you for that uh i had a question that uh, the second half of most of the years the oil demand is higher than the first half and with all the geopolitics happening now and the tightening of the oil market where do you see by the year end the oil prices would lead to When we talk about prices, basically, if you go back uh, to our uh, outlook, uh, you can search it on the web, EOA, EOA uh, 2023 Oil Market Outlook. That will pop the first thing on, on Google, EOA 2023 Oil Market Outlook, and read it. Uh, it's available for free. Uh, okay. Read it, and, and you can see all the evidence, all the charts, all the numbers, etc. So prices are going to go up. And right now, after the Saudi uh, cut, the voluntary cut of one million that could be extended, uh, uh, could be renewed uh, partially or fully, whatever, etc. If you look at the future in the second half, you will find the following. Based on OPEC outlook itself and estimates of demand, we will be short. 300 million barrels in the second half. That's not a day. That's throughout the half. 3 million, mm-hmm. 3 million, uh, 300 million barrels. That means if OPEC and OPEC Plus hold their production the same from now until the end of the year, inventories have to decline by about 300 million barrels And this never happened in history. Never happened. Yeah, And since it that's never huge. happened, that means we are going to end up with a situation where OPEC has no choice but to increase production, especially in the fourth quarter. Unless, unless OPEC forecasts are wrong or we end up with a recession. Okay. The conclusion of that okay. is this. Prices are going to go up. They are going to be higher. The Saudis are going to set the floor. China is okay. going to set the ceiling because China built its inventories. It built its strategic petroleum reserve in the last eight weeks. And we put a chart oh. a couple of days ago for those who would like to check our substack. You can see the chart free too. This is, you don't have even to, to go through a paywall to see it. It's, they've been building the, their inventories and they are going to use them just like they did before. And therefore the Saudis are going to set the price Uh, the floor at a price higher than today's and the Chinese are going to set the ceiling and prices will be range bound in the second half right. between the Saudi floor and the Chinese thing. ceiling. Thank you very much. Back to you. All right. Great question there. Um, I'm going to rotate another guest up here. I believe it is uh, Sphere. Maybe. I'm not sure 100% how to pronounce that, but it's uh, him next. Um, Sphere, welcome to the uh, to the space. What you got for us? Sphere, can you hear me? All right, going once, twice. All right. Oh, here we oh, go. Here okay. We go. Yep, can we can now? hear you. Yep. 
Dr. Anas, um, yeah, I'm uh, one of your great admirers. Your number one uh, question is uh, regarding shipments of uh, Iranian oil. Uh, do you think that will be uh, taking place for some uh, Western or American ship owners, tanker companies, loading at uh, Cargo Island in the near future? One of the problems we have, I mentioned earlier about the factions within the regime itself. And there are strong factions that control the oil trade. And they make more money at lower prices in the black market than if everything was open completely. Because once it's open completely, everything will go to the government budget. And they don't like that. So it remains to be seen whether this what you said is going to happen or not, simply because those factions are going to fight it out. And that's why there are factions that that really do not want any uh, agreement with the U.S. They don't want any peace with Saudi Arabia because they really, they make millions and millions of dollars out of that secret trade. And if you open everything up and normalize relations, that kills them. So we will see how this is going to play because those, those factions are extremely powerful. Back to you, Brandon. All right, great question. Uh, we have uh, Hugo back. Welcome, Hugo. Uh, what you got for us? Yeah, thank you. Um, so just uh, another factor I want to um, add and, and ask an opinion on you, that's the role of Israel. Um, as many of you know, Benjamin Netanyahu is facing um, jail sentences, prison sentences for his uh, involvement with the nuclear mafia. As many of you would know, Israel has about 70 nuclear weapons and it's never signed the non-proliferation treaty. So um, to distract the public from this and the corrupt relationship, Netanyahu always trumps up the threat of Iran. So he makes Iran, Iran look more scary than it actually is. And uh, for those who don't believe me that Iran is not scary, Iran's economy is the size of South Africa's and GDP per capita is half the size of South Africa's. So it's not a threat to world peace or even Israel, I believe. Um, but yeah, I just, just want to ask the view on on Israeli, um, you know, elections, internal dynamics, always playing out in the geopolitics, and then a follow on from that. Um, what is the possibility of establishing a nuclear, a non proliferation zone for the Middle East that all Arab countries and Iran has supported, but uh, Israel refuses to even entertain the possibility, and so does the U.S. So, and, and how that plays into this whole story? Thank you. Thank you. I have no comment. All right. Great. Uh, great insight there, Hugo. Um, so we're getting quite a few requests. I uh, just want to remind everybody, unfortunately, we're limited on time. So I'm going to try to get as much of y'all up as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, but we might not be able to get to, to every question. So uh, Maisine, I believe it is. Uh the floor is yours. Yes, salam alaikum. Good evening, Dr. Anas. I have questions. Uh, first question is, what about war trade? Uh, there is any connection between war trade and oil? Uh, second question is about... Uh, uh, it's coming, that second question. It is about uh, supply chain. There is any future changes about this 
supply chain. And the third question is about uh, oil price. I think uh, Iran going to change uh, the uh, economy of China becoming uh, more uh, effective and efficiently working uh, high with uh, maybe there's surprise news you know about it. Just uh, those questions, three questions, uh, Dr. Hassan. Sorry if, for If you go, um, thank you. Um, if you go to the uh, uh, Independent Arabia, that's the newspaper. It's the same independent, but in Arabic. And, and search for my name in Arabic. You will find uh, my weekly columns there. And the recent columns basically uh, answer all your questions in details. So all you got to do is just go to the Independent Arabia and, and, and search for my name and you get all the articles there with complete explanation of what you are looking for. And of course, you can always go to ataqa.net, A-T-T-A-Q-A.net, and it has more uh, explanations too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Awesome question. Um, yeah, so be sure to check that out. Uh, I believe Alani was next. So Alani, welcome to the space. Uh, what you got for us? Hey, Green Candle. Hey, Dr. Anas. Uh, thanks for bringing me up here. Um, Dr. Anas, my question for you is, you know, it's about the state of, of global inventories. Typically, you know, in recessions, you know, retailers will reduce their stocks. Um, that sometimes happens. It doesn't always happen in, in recessions for, for oil here, but there has been this global destocking narrative. My question for you is, you know, do you have an opinion on that? And then number two, you know, how much slack is there? Is there five days of, of demand or, or, or balances? Or, or do you see, what are your thoughts on the destocking uh, uh, narrative out there? Um, the, my question is to you, uh, when you talk about, uh, are you asking about the, re, the relationship between recessions and, uh, stocks? Recessions. Yeah. I'm curious. Number one, about the relationship between recessions and interest rate hikes and inventories, uh, um, you know, higher rates would make it more expensive in some sense to, to be holding, uh, inventories in a lot of cases. Um, historically, not in oil and gas, but for retailers overall, as well as for manufacturers, sometimes you see, uh, you know, overall inventories for everything in the economy uh, come down during a rate hike cycle. Is, is any of this going to affect oil and gas? Um, and, and then, you know, if so, how much slack is there? Um, generally speaking, if you, uh, because the impact is going to be on the products. So we got to focus on the refineries and their, res and, and their inventories, not the others. So the refineries basically are fine. We have no problems. Even when it declines, the refineries are fine. Uh, the issue when we have uh, a recession that, and we've, we've been seeing this over and over and over again. The oil industry is cyclical. 
and therefore in, in during a recession delay of people. And when the recession ends, they don't have enough people and they, we need to go up, whether, whether you are talking about refineries, whether you are talking about drilling or exploration, whatever, and then we have a problem there. So in terms of providing the products, we have no problem there. The problem is always personnel. And that's what we've been seeing after recessions throughout the oil industry. And some, some uh, uh, oil companies, basically, when they lay off uh, people, if they are still within the six-month window, uh, et cetera, they can go back quickly. Uh, many people, uh, as, as you have seen and I have seen, they just get angry and switch fields completely. So I, I see the, the issue as human resources more than anything else. Okay, but as of right now, you don't necessarily see um, you don't necessarily see pressure right now to to reduce inventories. You know, if if we potentially have a recession on on the horizon, I guess that's sort of my my question. Yeah, I, I suspected that. Basically, this increase in, in inventories, whether this is the result of a kind of a signs of a recession or something else. Uh, from my point of view, the increase in inventories in Asia. Is, is purely uh, opportunistic and is still way lower than the uh, levels we've seen in 2020. Uh, so I don't see, see a big deal uh, with that there. For the U.S., uh, we are still in a, in a comfortable range. If we go above 500, I will definitely ask you a question. Thank you, Dr. Renaz. Thank you. All right, we've got time for maybe one or two more questions. So uh, I apologize if we don't get to you. I'm doing my best to try to keep track of who's coming up when. But uh, Cameron, uh, welcome to the stage. What do you got for us? Hi, Dr. Anas. Thank you uh, so much for your input. Uh, I always learn a lot from you during these talks. My question is uh, as straightforward as it gets. Under what circumstances, when, please be specific, will the U.S. refill the SPR? And how does the declining relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States, and it seems the improving relationship between Saudi Arabia and China, play a role in that, if at all? Uh, two things. Uh, first of all, the Biden administration cannot fill the SPR uh, unless prices decline substantially. Our threshold, based on our calculations, is $43. Uh, so we have to go below 43 even to think about it. And I don't think even on a personal level, regardless of the numbers, I think prices should go to the 20s even to, to be able to fill the SPR. One of the reasons why, because they can purchase the oil at a specific price, but to deliver that to the facility, the cost is outrageous. So the final cost, if they people were talking about 70 and 72, etc. Well, the final cost is way higher than 72 uh, uh, once, once that oil is at the facility. The other issue when we talk about the impact of the refill, if it happens, the impact is almost non-existent. It's very limited for two reasons. First of all, any refill is going to be limited, in my view, is going to be 60 to 90 million, and that's it. Forget about the 180 million 
that we uh, uh, that the Biden administration withdrew, we are not going to refill that. Uh, in fact, the Biden administration re, uh, withdrew 211 million. Uh, so it's 60 to 90, and most likely it's going to be sour. And therefore, the Secretary of Energy or the statement by the Secretary of Energy that this is designed for U.S. producers, will benefit U.S. producers, we are going to use the forward markets, etc. It's a complete nonsense because uh, 8 million barrels of U.S. production comes from shale. And shale is light sweet, and we don't want light sweet. We are getting rid of it. All the 26 million that we are selling right now is light sweet. We don't want it. We want the medium sour. And to get medium sour, there are only, uh, and within the United States, most of it will come from the Gulf of Mexico, and that's it. Otherwise, you have to import it from other countries. So what is the scenario where prices will collapse, literally will collapse, and the Biden administration basically will be able to refill whatever amount they want. I'm going to give you one scenario. And I would like to warn that this scenario, the likelihood now, now is low. If the likelihood of this scenario will go higher, we will have a space and we will write about it. It's like this. Uh, MBS of Saudi Arabia gets angry at Putin because Putin is lying to him about the production cuts. And the scenario of the March 6 and 7, 2020 will be repeated, where the Saudis will just crash the market. The OSP of Aramco will be like minus $10, and they will crash the market. In this case, it is the time for the Biden administration to refill quickly, because this is not going to last long. And therefore, the Russians have to be careful, not understanding the Saudi signals in terms of the cut. That's why I believe that Russian production will decline to 10 million barrels a day because, uh, because of this. So to conclude, the Biden administration is going to refill unless prices decline substantially. And if they decline substantially, the impact on prices is very limited. I mentioned one reason, which is the, uh, um, the amount is small. And here is the second reason that a lot of people do not know about. It's technical. You cannot refill more than uh, probably 100 to 200,000 barrels a day on daily basis for the SPR. So you cannot pump more than that. And therefore, it takes months. So whatever amount you want to talk, let, talk about, you have to divide it over a long period because the pumping is extremely small. And the thing that the Biden administration does not want to talk about and I still wonder why the Republicans have not opened an investigation on this. There was some noise, but no one did anything that there is some repair. There are some repairs going on in some of the facilities. And the question is why? What's going on? Back to you. So, so if, if I may just ask a brief question. So it, what is the danger in the short term, meaning the next six to 12 months, or potentially longer as the SPR is not refill, refilled, what is the danger to the U.S. consumer? Because it seems to me that essentially the, the SPR was, was depleted in order to combat high oil prices. So if, if that limit is, is gone or that, that restriction or impediment on rising oil prices is gone and oil reflashes to the upside next time, what does the Biden administration do? No, that, that's okay. We still have 350 million barrels in the SPR. We still have a massive amount of oil. This is not a big deal. Uh, 
So I'm I'm not worried about the, the administration can still withdraw another 60 to 90 million without any problem. So when it comes to gasoline, we need the light, sweet crude. So we have no problem. We still have plenty of it. And we publish this chart every week. Uh, it shows the SPR with the numbers left in terms of sweet and uh, sour. You can check it in the timeline and on Twitter. Uh, so we have no problem using uh, additional 60 to 90 million uh, uh, barrels uh, from the SPR. So there is no problem there. The issue that really where things can get ugly, that if we end up with hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico and those hurricanes cause flooding in U.S. refineries, that's where the problems are. I am not worried about the SPR. I'm really worried about the hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico. Back to you. All right. Uh, well, Dr. Anas, you've been very generous with our with your time, and I really appreciate you coming in. So uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can uh, find the Substack and what all you've got going on? Thank you very much. Uh, please, first of all, please follow Brandon uh, Green Candle. Uh, he, he provides, uh, I mean, uh, incredible things, uh, especially on his Tuesdays uh, spaces that he converts to videos and YouTube, etc. It's just amazing. Uh, so thank you very much. Um, we have two Substack newsletters. One is intended uh, for institutional investors and high net worth individuals, and the other one is for everyone. The one for everyone is called the Daily Energy Report. We publish a report every single day where we discuss the news, etc. It's only $420 a year. So it's almost like a dollar something a day. Uh, uh, and and the other one is everything is in depth. Uh, we, uh, in terms of predictions, everyone knows from our clients, I think we, we do have the best predictions in the whole industry right now. We have a proven record of that. And all you get to do, just go back to our um, uh, oil market outlook that we published at the beginning of the year. It is the most accurate outlook so far. Uh, so these are two sub stacks, and I usually promote them on Twitter. I do have a website that I'm, I ignored for a long time, uh, but it has some wealth of information too. It's uh, my first name and my last name, Anas Al-Haji. Uh, and of course, I am uh, my uh, kind of uh, multitasking and the other task is always Twitter. So we'll see you on Twitter. Yeah, great stuff. And thank you so much for the kind words, Dr. Anas. Obviously, follow Dr. Anas and check out his sub stacks. Uh, there's one for everybody, as he said. Uh, there's like a daily that's a little bit, uh, you know, uh, uh, cheaper than one for more institutional type investors. So whatever fits you, uh, I can just, you know, attest that, that both of these are definitely uh, worth a dollar. So if you guys have, uh, you know, some interest in those topics, definitely check out Dr. Anas' Substack. And as he mentioned as well, uh, I will be putting this on my YouTube. And I think I'm going to add this to the audio feed of my Macro Insights podcast. Brandon, well. just one more comment, if you don't mind. For the yeah, new followers, yeah. I tweet a lot of things in Arabic or retweet. There is a wealth of information and breaking news coming out of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf and others. So if you see them, Twitter has a function, which is the translate function on the bottom left of every tweet. So if you push to the uh, translate, you get the translation uh, of it. So please do not unfollow just because you see too many uh, Arabic tweets. Uh, just translate and I'm sure you'll enjoy them. Thank you.
Yep, definitely do that. Don't let that deter you. So Dr. Anas, thanks so much.